Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, folks, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. Again, as usual, I'd like to thank Pulp Skins, Altonia Jewel, and Lorik Ferella for my avatar. Um, we're very excited tonight to welcome Jay Rosen and James Fallows to Virtually Speaking. Both of them have been here before, so it's great to have friends back to visit us again. Of course, you know that James Fallows writes for The Atlantic Magazine, and um, three books you definitely want to read of his are Postcards from Tomorrow's Square, Blind in the Baghdad, and what has motivated this discussion tonight, Breaking the News, which was written in the early 80s and was very prescient. Also with us is Jay Rosen of the NYU Graduate School of Journalism. He tweets intensively and extensively as Rosen underscore NYU, and he blogs at PressThink.org. And we're talking in part about his book, What Are Journalists For? Gentlemen, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. In order to keep the Jays and the Jims and the Johns and the everybody straight, we're going to mostly <laughs> talk to each other by surnames. So um, what I'd like to talk about first, Mr. Fellows, is the question of what happened to the narrative in the TSA screening crisis that hit right before Thanksgiving. It was very strange for me, of course, and I suspect for you, because you and I and other people have been writing about this issue for quite a while, me in comments and you in the front pages of places. And to see all of a sudden this turn into a conservative versus liberal split was something that I found very peculiar to watch. And you wrote about it in a um, in a post where you talked about discovering that you were conservative. And if we could start with that, because I'd like to you and Jay to talk about how that narrative emerged, how it turned out that I had suddenly, or you had suddenly, and for that matter, Bruce Schneier had suddenly become a helpless tool of Koch or Coke, whoever he says his name. And that that was a very funny thing to watch. And folks, we're not going to talk about the merits of the TSA screening. Today, we just want to talk about the media narrative. So, Mr. Fellows. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Eckroyd. And I will actually set this up with a question for our colleague, Professor Rosen, because I was, I felt as if I was in the middle of this in a media sense, and I'm really curious about what his observation from, from half remove would be. And as you, you said, that for the last five or six years, there's been a long-term critique of what we could think of as, as the secure, what, what Bruce Schneier had called the security theater approach from the TSA, whether this was the right way or the wrong way. As you point out, we won't get into the actual merits of that, but it had been not a particularly partisan dialogue at all. It would probably, if anything, the people making this case were more liberals than conservatives, but there were some ACLU-type liberals, some classic Cato Institute-type libertarians, and people just saying, let's look at the actual merits of how the U.S. deploys its um, its resources, how it balances liberties versus security, et cetera. And so this had been building up for a while. At the Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg and I, who don't agree on a lot of things, were both agreeing on this uh, this TSA front. Then suddenly, as the advanced imaging machines and the enhanced pat-downs were rolled out early in November, there was this explosion of concern, which for a couple of days seemed to be not particularly partisan, but then it had somehow gotten grafted onto a right-wing narrative that this was, um, while the security state had not been controversial to the right during the Bush and Cheney era, suddenly this was one more extension of big government under, under Obama. 
And after that couple days of apparently right-wing uh, inflammation, there was a sort of standard liberal critique of saying, oh, well, you know, the government is trying to, to, to keep us safe. So it was quite puzzling to me, including the way it sort of died down in the, the days after Thanksgiving. So I have not been able to sort it out yet except to say that it was a strange phenomenon. I wonder if Professor Rosen has any analytical thoughts about it. Hmm. Well, I certainly thought it was a strange episode, and I had uh, followed the debate over security theater. I'm a loyal reader of The Atlantic, and I was very familiar with that critique, and I didn't think of it as anything particularly ideological. What I noticed was the original blog post by the traveler in San Diego, whose name escapes me for the moment, who got caught up in... Um, was China, I believe. Yeah, right. John, something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who got caught up in the screening and, and wrote this post that also included some video and some audio. And I remember finding that uh, on Twitter, reading it and saying, you know, this is going to go viral, which it which it did. And for the first few days, what was happening was that a lot of people who were familiar with the absurdity of flying and who um, were reacting to that blog post were simply outraged at a human level and as citizens. And they were influenced by others on social media who were saying the same thing. And I think what happened, Jim, is after a certain period of time where it became clear that this story would move from the internet and from social media to the mainstream media to USA Today and to the networks that the permanent campaign and the the culture war sort of took it over and had to bend it to its purposes and that was always a distortion of the fact that lots of people were upset about this from all political persuasions and I think that didn't change at all. That stayed the same all the way through the episode, but it got drowned out, as it were, by the resumption of the culture war, which picked up on the story late, but nonetheless, when it did, you had a very familiar narrative uh, kind of overtake event. So that, that would be my sense of it. One of the ways in which that expressed itself was a Nation article. That yeah. You, you tweeted quite a bit about, and um, mm-hmm. it quite a ruckus both. Um, in the media and also in the social media, but also in the mainstream media. Can you uh, just run through that? I just posted the link to that to that article. Well, that was one of the worst articles in the nation I've read ever. And it was an attempt to suggest that John Tyner, who wrote that original post, was uh, a kind of a plant or an operative uh, under the influence of the right-wing noise machine and funding, and it had no facts whatsoever to make that case. I mean, it was the sort of thing where if I if, if a student turned it in in my class, I would recall, Jim, you know that scene in All the President's Men where Ben Bradley tosses the, uh, the, the story <laughs> yep. back at the reporters and he says, get some hard information next time. That's how I, what I felt about the story. It had no information in it. It just had uh, for these allegations... And almost everybody who read it with a critical eye, and that included a lot of people who are 
fans of the nation, subscribers of the nation. In my case, I'm a, I have been a writer for the nation. Uh, knew that this just didn't make the grade. It was, it was a just editorially speaking, it was a terrible story. But it, it participated in the culture war. It was about the vast right-wing astroturfing conspiracy, and it was attempting to kind of drag these events into this pre-sold nation narrative. And I, I just felt there's no way that this story was going to sustain itself, and especially after Jeremy Scahill, one of the nation's top writers and a great journalist, denounced it, along with Glenn Greenwald, I, I said on my Twitter feed, there's no way Katrina is going to be able to sustain this. She's going to have to apologize for this story, and eventually she did. Right, right. And I gave her credit for, for that. And let me just me too. Yeah. take this, the, the next chapter, which is interesting to me in, in the press narrative, because it happened on Monday of this week, just three days ago. Uh, Jeff Goldberg and I from The Atlantic got in to go interview John Pistol, who's the, the head of the TSA, and to ask him about a bunch of these things. And we had... What I thought was a pretty interesting interview with him, you don't have to agree with the whole uh, philosophy he laid out, but he was at least willing to discuss how they thought they were setting the balance between security and liberties and what was, was flawed about TSA's approach, et cetera. And so he posted this on the, the Atlantic site. And whereas two weeks earlier, anything with the letters TSA in it on the Atlantic site got you know record numbers of hits there's been relatively modest attention to what i thought was actually quite a news making interview from this guy which suggests there there's something um you know maybe the meta point is only illustration number 4000 of the faddishness of press attention but mm-hmm. that that was the that's sort of the, the finale of the story for me hmm. i didn't even see that i, I want to go and read that now cuz i'm i'm very interested in it but you're right that it's like the attention curve has passed the highlights of this interview, just, just to let you know, one is I start off by asking him who sets the balance between security and liberties, and he essentially said, I do. And he said uh-huh. it in a very reasonable way, but that was uh, sort of news to me. He was saying, second, that the airports had sort of become a Fourth Amendment-free zone, you know, unreasonable search and seizure, because by taking the affirmative act of buying a ticket, you were exposing yourself to different kind of scrutiny. Also, he said that he thought that TSA's approach really just had to change in a fundamental way. So, so it was. Uh, if this had been out ten days ago, uh, I think it would have been seen as more interesting. You know what I thought was a really telling moment, Jim, is when the first wave of frustration over the uh, the absurd procedures that led to these uh, this blog post came. A lot of people noted um, just how stupid and nonsensical it was to send pilots through the screening procedures, right. because pilots, if they want to crash the plane, you know, they have many ways of doing that, and they don't particularly need a weapon to do it. And that was a very important point for me, because what what I object to is not so much the invasion of privacy, although that would bother me, it's that I can't stand living under a stupid government. Right. I, 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 hate, I hate it when... The procedures that the state is forcing on me are manifestly stupid. And that was was about as good an example as you could find of that. And they changed it. So, like, why do you think they changed it? And did you ask him about that? Yes, we we asked Pistol exactly that. And so uh, he he had been quoted earlier as saying that he didn't favor a cookie-cutter approach to security. So I said, well, how is what you're doing now not a cookie-cutter approach? And he said, well, look at the pilots. 
we uh, and, and you know, Pistol, it should be said, has only been in this job since July. And so I, I think that pretty soon he started to change it. said, we recognize there's lots of other ways pilots can take down an airplane if you want, and there's no way you can look into their heads. So why are we doing all this idiotic taking fingernail clippers away from them? And they're doing something similarly they haven't publicized for flight attendants, also to have a much less kind of uh, onerous uh, principle on them. So I think that if I wanted to feel optimistic for one second about a less stupid security state, it would be the change of the pilot's rule and the abandonment of the color code system, which made me want to scream every time I heard this. For the last four and a half years, it's been at orange. And, and you know, being able to give the deep six to that was the only promising evidence, along with the pilot, of ever reversing the security state ratchet. Well, the other one was the, the simple fact that Unlike almost any story that's come along to claim media attention over the last few, few years, this really was left, right, center, libertarian. You know, and to, to interrupt, it was in its actual merits, but there was that strange week-long period where it was portrayed, it was like sort of run through some spectrometer and yes. separated out where first it looked as if all the complaint were right wing and then the people saying, well, actually we're okay with this, we're seen as being left wing. So I agree with you. In its merits, it's not a partisan issue at all. It's a liberties issue, but it really, uh, you know, I've made common cause with a lot of my libertarian uh, right wing friends on this. Well, Professor Rose, we have a question from the audience. Meriden Maginot is asking, well, where's the issue now? Pretty much repeating what Mr. Fallow said when he said that this transcript of this very interesting interview um, seems to just vanished, even though it's filled with important information towards any real question involved with, um, with, the, with the TSA grope gate or whatever you want to call it. So why did it vanish? What happened? Why, don't, why didn't we see that interview played widely and um, you know, the answers to a lot of these questions given? Well, I haven't read the interview yet. Uh, uh, so it doesn't I'm really matter. That it's yeah, very straightforward, actually. I just read through about a third of it. And the point is is that if the, the media narrative didn't fit into the narrative, right? Isn't that what happened? Well, yeah. I mean, that's part of it. I think, I think also that we are not accustomed to a rational cycle in which problems come to light, people argue and debate them, and there's some sort of resolution where the problem is actually fixed. I think our default assumption is that actually nothing is going to change and we'll just be here again uh, with sort of the same alignment of forces around some other issue. And so once the, the arguments are had and the, and the media crisis fades, we pretty much assume that things are going to be exactly the same. And so... We don't get a lot of resolution. We get uh, replacement of one story with another. I would agree with that. And also, it was interesting in this interview, I'll tout one more time with, uh, with the head of the TSA, again, the ironically named Mr. Pistol, that the main point that rang through every issue we discussed was how complicated and shades of gray it is. You know, he was saying look, there is no way, uh, there certainly is going to be another terrorist attack that succeeds. The only way we could prevent that is to not let anybody fly. So as soon as we move away from that absolutism, we know that it's, it's a trade-off. And then you have just each one of these things is a judgment call, and it's a matter of politicians not taking responsibility for discussing these things. Frankly, there's questions of scale of the U.S. versus Israel. There's questions of efficiency and commerce. And so the very fact that it, it went from the sort of clear outrage of, oh, you're groping a nun, to right. 
you know, these are, are it's the endless balance between liberty and security that is harder to sort of uh, go viral, if you will. But isn't that his job is to sort of make it as boring as possible so nobody really has oversight? Well, actually, um, I, I think, again, there, there's a lot I disagreed with in what he said. I'm going to put up something tomorrow, sort of the three points where I mainly disagree. I give him credit. What you were saying that that thing which drives you crazy is the stupid security state, and, right. and I will, you know, the people at TSA before their answer to anything was because we said so. You know, right. This is uh, and then the color code system was indispensable to national security. Just like you're made to turn off your iPads on an airplane, although there is no chance in hell that your iPad is going to interfere with the navigation. I speak as a pilot. You know, there's no way an iPad will interfere with a plane or your noise-reducing headsets, and they make you turn them off, and it's stupid. So right. the fact that, that Pistol was able to discuss this in an intelligent way, saying these are hard questions, that's something. All right. So I, I'm not sure why why we can't keep more than one big story on our screen or in our frame at the same time. Do you have any theories about that, Jim? Uh, this is <laughs> yeah, this is one of many uh, chronic nightmares of, of the press. And I guess I would say that in the 15 years since Professor Rosen and I first talked about these issues, when he was already uh, writing about them at, at NYU and I was doing my book, Breaking the News, a tension that, that has been built into journalism for a long time has become worse and very hard to resist for, I think, largely technological and commercial reasons. And it's, uh, you can think of this as the um, as, as the Gary Condit uh, issue, or I think of it as uh, as an OJ issue too. You know, Gary Condit, of course, he was all over the news for uh, for Chandra Levy until the 9/11 attacks happened, and then you never heard of Gary Condit again until this this last month or so. I was at some diplomatic hearing when the OJ chase began, and suddenly OJ uh, drowned out everything. The coming of of cable news made it possible, both possible and necessary, for one story to dominate the ecosystem. Just as if you have monoculture and agriculture and all other things, it became more difficult to do what the front page of a newspaper ideally does or what the segments on a good news broadcast do. Instead, it was everybody doing one thing. And I think the Internet, while it has allowed, in theory, people to have very specific and divided and balanced views of the world, I think the going viral phenomenon has intensified the OJ 9-11 phenomenon, which means there's sort of one thing dominating the landscape at a moment. Does that correspond to the view from uh, the Academy? <laughs> I think there's something to that. The viral thing is almost mathematical. And I think that with with cable, you have an additional... You have an additional dynamic there, which is that, and I think this is actually extends from news into into entertainment as well. Um, I don't know if you if you read uh, David Carr's column last week in which he was talking about the CBS Morning News show had just replaced its anchors, and the CBS Morning News has been in third place, a distant third place for like twenty years, and instead of replacing the format instead of changing the show instead of actually coming forward with a new idea for what to do in morning news they're just taking two similar looking anchors out and putting two new anchors in you know and and this is not a winning franchise this is a losing franchise so i think especially in television you have this phenomenon where 
people know how to make television shows. Mm-hmm. And they continue to make television shows not because they work, but because that's what they know how to do. And competition means everybody doing the same thing and we'll see from the ratings who did it best. As opposed to the notion in which competition is usually valorized, which is everyone comes up with their own product and, you know, may the best product win or, or a diversity of of entrants competes. It's the opposite. There's something in big media, mass media that where I, I think it has something to do with the players are cutting down the risk of failing and and so they kind of cooperate in doing the same thing and they agree on what the scorecard is, is going to be, but none of them is completely embarrassed because they're all doing the same thing. I think there's an element of that in there, too. Uh, Professor Rosen, two things. First off, you're very close to just re- revamping, reciting your um, three spheres of the media. And I think that's really appropriate here. And then there's a question from the audience. Can you just remind us of the three spheres? Um, well, this comes from a post of mine, uh, one of my most successful posts called Audience Atomization Overcome. And it states that a different way of drawing up a model for the public sphere of argument would be to take a uh, a pencil, draw a, a hole, and then draw another hole to make like a donut shape. And in the center ring, you you write the word sphere consensus. In the donut itself, you write sphere of legitimate debate. And then everything outside the donut is the sphere of deviance. And so what this model says is that there are certain things that are so consensual that all speakers and all journalists agree on them, and they tend to uh, not even get mentioned because they're so obvious, like um, freedom and apple pie and baseball and uh, the equivalent in, in politics. So that's the sphere of consensus of things that we don't, have to talk about and that we don't argue about because they're they're obvious. And then the outer sphere, the sphere of deviance, is ideas and people and causes that are uh, so awful or terrible or unlikely or extreme or marginalized that they rarely make it into the conversation at all. And then in the middle, the donut shape itself is the sphere of legitimate uh, debate, and that's what you see on the talk shows, and that's what you see on Washington Week in Review, and that's what makes it onto the op-ed pages of, of the nation. And things, there is some movement, there are permeable boundaries. Things occasionally move from the sphere of deviance into the sphere of legitimate debate. But the reason for setting it up this model this way is, is that one of the most powerful things journalists do is they police these boundaries. And they are able to set the terms for what the sphere of legitimate debate is. But the Internet has made it possible for groups of people who lay outside the sphere of legitimate debate and who never heard their concerns addressed, who never got on television, as it were, to find their heroes and locate each other, trade information, and publish to the world, and that's that's what a good political blog does. Uh, so a, a very effective blog like Fire Dog Lake is able to gather together all the previously atomized people who were really really interested in the Valerie Plain case, give them a home, and also give them a way um, to pool what they know, pool their money, pool their attention and their concern, and sort of get on the radar screen. 
And so the power of the press to police these spheres is being undermined by the Internet. Anyway, that's the, that's okay. the model. Okay, and so inside that model, then, you're talking about the cable TV's people taking a very, very narrow definition of what is the consensus discussion, right? Yeah, I think there's an incentive for them to narrow down the sphere of legitimate debate to uh, a similar range of topics because then nobody can be too wrong. Okay, now, and then Avid on Sideshow says, okay, but isn't it kind of part of this whole thing that the sphere of a legitimate debate is, is defined by large corporations like GE and like uh, like Disney, and that 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 constraint is something we're not talking about and need to. And she yeah. says, "Are we going to pretend that huge corporations will be taking over news media has nothing to do with why stupid news takes over the headlines?" Um, no, I don't pretend that, but I don't think that explains everything either. And with that, that's a nice transition actually to the WikiLeaks discussion that I wanted to have tonight. Now. You just posted to just now, just like seven o'clock is when I pulled it up, Professor Rosen. You posted a new a new post on WikiLeaks. Can you just describe what you're saying there? It's the end of the watchdog journalist you're talking about in here. It's called From Judith Miller to Julian Assange, and it rehearses events that Jim Fallows knows well. And essentially, it says that the nadir for the watchdog press was reached on September eighth, two thousand and two, when the New York Times published this story about the aluminum tubes that also then made it onto the Sunday shows, and that's when Condi Rice um, said on CNN that we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. And uh, I argue that the circle was closed and that because this information came from the administration, then it went got laundered, in a sense, through the New York Times, and then it was the fact that the Times was running that on the front page that enabled five different people from the administration to talk about it the same day on the, the Sunday shows. So this nadir of the watchdog press, which was never really examined, didn't really cause the, the kind of reflection and, and searching examination that it should have within our press, is related, I think, to the demands for radical transparency and and to the rise of WikiLeaks, which I think is in part a result of the failure of the watchdog press here. Mr. Fellows, have we... <laughs> yes, I, I read that post, and I basically agree with, with that thesis. What strikes me in the narrative of, if we draw a, a parallel between the TSA narrative and the press and the WikiLeaks leaks narrative, it struck me that, say, 10 days ago, when the latest harvest of, of the, this much, much larger harvest of State Department documents started coming out, there was some strong initial reaction of the pure, this is good, or pure, this is bad form that you saw from, from both sides. There were some, for example, Joe Klein, a longtime time writer, was saying this, you know, that, that he was very, very upset with, with Assange and, and the damage that WikiLeaks were doing. Some other mainstream media, and of course the U.S. government very hard on that line, and some other people hard on the opposite line. This was purely a step towards transparency information or something. We had a, a very, very popular uh, post on our Atlantic site was by, uh, by David Samuels essentially st saying stop the shameful attacks on Julian Assange, and that got a, a lot, lot of attention. It strikes me that as the days have gone on, and it's become clear how unknowable, how large, how varied, and still unfolding are the effects of this new information dump. It, it seemed to me that the narrative has become appropriately more 
blurred or complex or, or tentative because there are things here which clearly seem good and in the world's interest to know. There's some that clearly seem like they're going to be damaging and making it hard for either individuals or organizations trying to do good things. There's some things that we just don't know how they're going to affect uh, the way governments operate and individuals operate and, and, and all the rest. So, so here is a case where the narrative, I think, has moved into a from an initially very polarized way to a more appropriately um, tentative way because we just don't know where this is leading. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's true, and I think that's that's a good thing. And people are taking an attitude that I think they should take more often, which is let's see what happens. You know, let's like watch with a really careful eye rather than striking poses and and joining sides. I think that's a that's a good thing. At the, at the same time, I think there's a sense that we're witnessing a pretty large shift uh, because when a player like WikiLeaks, without even an address, can completely crack open both the government and the media system and let loose the kind of storm of activity, especially with the way it's been shut down on on the Internet. I think there's also a sense, Jim, that something big is happening here, but none of us know exactly what it is. And that's also responsible for some of the hesitation, I think. Yes, but and I'm saying I think the hesitation is is basically a sane reaction and is different from the first wave reaction where you saw people compelled to have axiomatic, he is a hero or he is a villain traitor. And I think that, that it, it'll be a long time before we know, uh, pro- probably the most important effects of this we no- won't know for a long time. Uh, you know, there are many things I've learned about one of my great interests, which is U.S.-China relations from reading these things, reading some of the transcripts about Google. There are some other things mm-hmm. I've been, I've been uh, alarmed to see. It, it's, it's a very, very large thing that we're going to be talking about 10 years from now, I, I think. As, as one other note, a, a story that seems underappreciated here is the – theory of State Department people in two grounds. One is they feel as if the thing that was the mainstay of their work is now going to be different forever. You know, the cables they did is going to be different forever. So they are furious that that the Pentagon must have been the source of these leaks because State Department computers, you cannot plug in a USB stick. They are designed to be uncopyable. And it was uh, for various reasons the Pentagon, you know, with apparently with with um, you know the, the, the private who, who we've we've known that Bradley Manning, yeah, yes, the, the uh, sort of friction between the quiet fury of State Department people is quite an impressive thing. Okay, now I want to bring up two things. One of them is um, something Marcy Wheeler said last Sunday, actually, and that is who the people are who are involved in this, and th- there's a real resistance in her view for the New York Times or for um, The Guardian to recognize that they're in the same part of this as Assange is, as WikiLeaks is, that the equivalent of Scooter Libby isn't Assange here. The equivalent of Scooter Libby is Bradley Manning. And that while the reporting model that WikiLeaks is using is different, it is really a reporting model, just as The Times is a reporting model. Can either of you react to that? I would start by by saying that that as a old-line journalist myself, 
the word collection model, it seems to me more a collection model than it does a reporting model. And, and I, I think I would distinguish the previous Afghanistan and Iraq leaks from this from this latest sort of all points uh, embassy disclosure, where those the previous ones seemed more like classic whistleblower activities, saying there's an active there there's a there's a great issue of public policy underway. Here is a report from people on the inside about things that deserve more attention. So that was a model that's been in journalism for for a very long time. This is more the just the only apparent purposefulness in it is revealing everything. In that sense, it seems to me a collection model as opposed to reporting, if, if I can maintain that distinction. Well, I'm not quite sure what you're saying there, Jim, because... Did, the, did you the, see... Uh, hold it, one second, one second, Professor Rosen. Jim, did you see the, um, the cringely part piece about the dump that he got from Apple? No, I did not see that. It, Tell me what I should have seen. Well, it's something that Cringely said that he got from an inside of Apple. He got two years' worth of planning from Apple. And what he did then is he would, about every week or so, he would get a, take one of those stories, confirm it with somebody else, and run a story in InfoWorld. And for two years, he dribbled, drabbled that out. And he was noting that this idea of dumping it all at once is not what journalists do. What journalists do is they, is they hold this information right. and parcel it up bit by bit. And yes. there's a competitive reason for them to do that in part, and partly that's what the model is that they use. And he said it made it easy for me to write stories for two years. And that doesn't sound like a good thing to me in some ways, I guess. Uh, no, and the difference here is something that the WikiLeaks people have been shrewd in avoiding by parceling out among a, a number of organizations so that no one of them has the monopoly supply to do, to do the long-term parceling out. And I guess I would distinguish, and you can tell me, uh, Jay Rosen, whether I'm, I'm being too... Uh, just to hidebound in saying this, between the WikiLeaks activity of just amassing all these things they got from wherever they got them, and then the Guardian and Spiegel and New York Times are saying, okay, we're going to put all the China stuff together. We're going to go through this and say, okay, here's the China stuff. Then we're going to look at the Palestine stuff. Then we're going to look at the stuff from South Africa. So there is more of a classic journalistic shaping activity, I think, in what those news organizations are doing from the just raw material, this great big um, barrel of documents they got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little confused about what you're saying because they got this big barrel of documents. They got to 150,000 cables from their source. When it came time to start releasing them, however, they've only released about 1,000 of them. And almost all of the ones that they released have been the ones vetted and reported on by the media partners they're working with. So, so, so they, it, WikiLeaks, only released the 1,000, you're saying? Yes, right. Okay. So they have 250,000, but as Glenn Greenwald has been noting again and again and again... Yeah, he said it today on Brian Lehrer, actually, yeah, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, Brian Lehrer, he said... You they, find this constant denunciation that of indiscriminate dumping when that is not actually what they're doing. They haven't just dumped 250,000. They have them but they are actually releasing them in a very measured way. And they seem to be, although they haven't announced it this way, they seem to be relying on the vetting and the relatively close relationships between newspapers and governments to avoid releasing documents that could harm individuals, which raises a very interesting question about WikiLeaks that I, that I have not seen discussed 
much at all, which is to what degree does WikiLeaks want, seek, and need legitimacy? I think that's a really important, large question about... I want to go back to something that Ethan Zuckerman of the, of the uh, Berkman Center noted today in a really inter- interesting discussion they had at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society where you have you know, 25 people, all of whom are obsessed by this because it's a huge issue for the people there and what they study. And what he said is that WikiLeaks has gone through three phases in its two- or three-year life so far. And in the first phase, they were really kind of a broker, making it possible for dissidents, people who couldn't get their voices out, to speak to the world. And they worked a lot in Africa, and they simply allowed people who were perhaps under threat or in a dangerous situation to leak documents that proved what was happening in a part of the world that was was very dark and rarely, rarely seen into. And they worked as kind of a a broker for uh, powerless people. And then in the second phase, typified by the collateral damage video, they shifted and became more like advocacy journalists. And now they've moved into this third phase where they're sort of like a warehouse for, or, uh, or a clearinghouse for the traditional press and a source for them working in concert with the journalists who used to monopolize these sources. And this is one of the interesting things about WikiLeaks is that each, with each release, the shape of the organization and the methods and the MO changes. Did you see the interview with Stengel that, that Assange did, Richard Stengel in Time? I did not see that because one. Because one of the things he says is he says their first idea, I've always, always irritated me that it was called WikiLeaks because there's no real wiki quality right. to it. Right, exactly. And what he says, Mr. Fallows, to Stengel is they tried to do it that way first. They tried to just dump the material out. And it turned out that the blogging community was too diffuse and to be able to handle it, and that they really needed the organized, centralized media to pick it up and to start things rolling, and then they would jump on it. So, you know, the story of Josh Marshall's attorney general thing, it, they found didn't yep. work when they did this. Did, do, do, have you read anything along that line? I can yes, and, and it is uh, ironic that the most dramatic demonstration of a new f- source of, uh, of information power in the world relies on some of these dinosaurs of the established press around the world to for, for this legitimacy. To circle back on a couple of things, what we were saying, if it is, is really true that WikiLeaks has – I should ask Jay Rosen – is it your understanding that WikiLeaks has been saying, okay, now we have all the China documents, and we're going to package them and then send those to the news organizations? My understanding was that no. sort of the conceptual shaping was done by these news organizations. No, my understanding is they have given the news organizations the large file, mm-hmm. and it's more that the news organizations are finding the ones they want to report on, right. doing some of the verification necessary and packaging them and readying them for publication. And that's what I was trying to say in a less precise way early on. Let me also mention the business. There's an interesting aspect of the government news media vetting process that I think has not been fully reported, which is that you know, we've seen this spectacle in the last uh, week or so when material that's on the front page of the New York Times 
government agencies have been sending emails to their employees saying you cannot quote this material you know, on your government computer systems. It's still classified. It's still secret, even though it's on every blog site, even though it's, uh, it's in the New York Times. And the rationale they give is partly that they have to uh, – but part of it is they want to just sort of um, – it would be a nightmare for their computer systems if they had technically still classified and unclassified systems together. But also there's a view in the government – that even if something is released and generally believed to be true, it's different if they confirm it or not. There may be stories every place saying there's 15 nuclear bombs in North Korea, but if Hillary Clinton says, yeah, that's right, it's different from if she just says no comment. This applies to the vetting process, too, because in a lot of these things, I understand from people in the government, they're not able to say this is right, this is wrong. It feels as if they can't comment on a lot of it. So it is maybe a less precise business of having the State Department say, please don't use this, because they have less leeway than you would think to, to make any comment at all on whether it's, uh, it's right or not. So what you have then, if I understand you, uh, Jim, is that the government has an interest in preserving maximum uncertainty. Correct. And they are actually trying, in a sense, to keep bad actors in the... But the result is that they have to keep the public as uncertain as possible, too. Yes, and I think that's one of probably 20 ongoing ethical recalibrations going on now in all sorts of different institutions of whether that is, in the new environment, a plausible model for the government to maintain. It's the one that through the past decades they, they have been able to maintain, but now it's this whole different environment with this gigantic trove of information being right. made public. Now, this brings us, though, to, to a post that Jay Rosen put up a little while ago, and he tweeted it, actually, from a guy named Kozdal Zungu Zungu, zunguzungu.wordpress.com, the two-handed engine, WikiLeaks, so forth. Now, what he said in this, he's quoting extensively from Assange's work, and Professor Rosen, stop me when you, whenever you want to summarize. Or why don't you summarize what he said? Do you remember? Well, his, his name is Alan Beatty, B-A-T-Y. And his argument is that Assange has a theory about the secret world of uh, power players and, and diplomats. And the theory starts with treating them as a kind of conspiracy. And by conspiracy, he doesn't necessarily mean a criminal conspiracy or um, a Leninist cult. He simply means a group of people who share... Uh, a goal and keep the rest of the world from from knowing what they're doing. Now, to put in hacker terms, he's also saying that there's like a system, a network. Yeah, there's a system, right? And that network is, consists of a series of nodes, some of which are connected to other nodes, and some of which right. are connected some of which are connected, connected some of which are not. And, and if you somebody, analyze that as a as a communication system, you can find that it has certain properties that enable it to quote-unquote think because unless people in that system can take coordinated action unless they can make a decision and act as almost as one unless they can analyze where they're going and change course then the conspiracy can't operate and so he says leaks are potentially destabilizing to the whole system because they cause each person, each player in the system, to wonder if the other people they're communicating with are the possible 
source of the leak. And leaks cause a conspiracy to almost start feeding on itself or slow the communication from so node to node and thereby cripple the conspiracy and make it so that it can no longer work. And this, according to Baby, is the the grand theory that Assange is working on. He's actually trying to cripple that system from working by creating this huge uncertainty through making it much easier for particular actors within it to leak. And Mr. Fowler, with your background in uh, systems work, do you see how a computer hacker might look at this and see an AI an emergent, with emergent sure. intelligent properties? And so he's trying um, to attack it by attacking the nodes and attacking the links. I, I agree with that, and I think that there's a theoretical point and a practical point I, I'd make from it. The theoretical point is it's interesting that the main avatar and propulsive force for transparency around the world right now, that is WikiLeaks itself, is so notably non-transparent. We don't know who, who it is. We don't know where they are, et cetera, et cetera. And that may be the facile thing would be to say, oh, this is hypocritical. The non-facile thing would be to say it's trying to insulate itself against the very weapon we've just been describing, of trying to make sure the same tool is not turned against it. But on, on the practical level, here is something which I think is being absorbed at least within the U.S. diplomatic corps and probably any international organization of, of any scale. In my own life, I learned about eight or ten years ago never to put in email to anybody anything that I didn't want that, you know, some third party to see. It's just too insecure a medium. It's too mm -hmm. easy to, to, to quote. I never said anything critical of anybody in email. And, and I think that diplomats and international organizations have in many cases lived in sort of a false innocence until now about that phenomenon. The State Department really believed that its cables could be secret. And now, forever after, they know that they will not be secret. And so you, you are having, in the U.S. diplomatic service, in any kind of organization of any country, any nationality, recognize that nothing in digital form can ever again assume to be secret. And what that means, I think, will play out you know, in ways we, we don't fully know. Of course, the United States has successfully degraded bin Laden's network as they've taken out their rapid communication systems and left them with with things that make that network hard to organize. Uh, that's probably true. But I, I want to inject something here that, would, that I think would interest Jim. As a student of the press, the, the factor of leaking has actually been important in the growth of the press for 300 years, or almost 300 years. And the dynamic that brings leaking and the press together hasn't really changed in that time. And I'm sure that from your years in government, you would recognize this. But the, the original pattern, which goes back to Parliament in the 18th century, is that there's a dispute within Parliament. And there's a winning side and a losing side. And the losing side isn't happy that it was outvoted or outmuscled. And so its only alternative is to try and widen the battlefield. And what happens is that players in the system learn at a particular point that they can do that by going public with the dispute, which means, in the case of 18th century English politics, going to the, the emerging newspapers and talking about 
what was being argued and fought over in Parliament, which at the time was actually a crime, because there wasn't any open reporting in Parliament, there wasn't uh, any right to criticize the king, there wasn't regular looks into what the Parliament was doing, but by leaking, the losing faction could widen the battlefield and hope to possibly win through a kind of a replay of the conflict. And that dynamic has remained the same for hundreds of years, and it tends to pull the press in as a player in politics. What's different now is that this new organization, WikiLeaks, is not interested in simply relaying what the players are saying to other insiders the way political journalists tend to, to do, but instead broadcasting to the world. And, and the widening of the battlefield is just way wider, just that much bigger of a factor beyond what we have, have seen before. But the dynamic of leaking has been part of the nexus of politics, power, press, and public opinion for hundreds of years. Yes, and, and I, I agree with that. And the way I've seen that operationally in my own life as a journalist and in the couple of years I worked in the government for anybody who uh, – I, I was I worked in the Carter administration as, as his speechwriter – it is a seamless but very broad continuum. Um, every point on that continuum, there is a motivated exchange of information. There always is some reason that the person who possesses the information thinks he'll, he'll be better off by, by sharing it with, with the reporter. The reporter is always better off just by having the new information, but it can be as simple as personal vanity of wanting people, the reporter to think that you're an interesting and well-informed person. It can be low-level personal rivalry of letting out poison against one of your rivals, and the Washington Press Corps is very, very guilty at, of using, uh, of being uh, you know, exploited for that sort of thing. But very often it is, as you say, trying to change the, the battlefield. And I found myself when working in the government, when there are certain issues that I had no hope of winning inside, I would describe that battle occasionally to reporters and saying, here is the fight that's going on. And if that fight was described in the press, it did change the internal d dynamics. And so I didn't think right. I was doing anything illegitimate. I just was explaining it. What seems different here is the degree or the spread of purposefulness. All the other exchanges I've talked about, there's been a kind of direct motivation. Here, the motivation, sort of mass distribution of information, it's either just saying more information by definition will be better, or as we've su suggested before, that by definition it will weaken an institution that is seen to be uh, malign or in need of weakening, i.e. the U.S. diplomatic corps or, or whatever. So I think the difference of scale does create a certain difference of type, too, because it's, the purposefulness is harder to, to define in this case. But part of what they're saying, bringing this back to Dr. Professor Rosen's article that we talked about at the outset, is that the transactions that took place before the Iraq War were ones that were not may not be able to be taken place quite so easily now because the ability to leak information to Judy Miller may not be possible without other people discovering that this is in fact an intentional attempt to create a false story in the media. Well, and to interrupt there, if I could, I, I think that will be the case if there's more like a real-time feedback loop here. Several years after the decision to invade Iraq, 
everybody knew that the stories about these uh, uranium rods were wrong. Some people were saying that at the time, but it took a while for that to come back. If WikiLeaks, in addition to these, the uh, if it's able to do things in more like real time for decision making, then that would have the effect you're you're mentioning. Well, let's talk about, for example, the James Risen story that was spiked by the administration. Do you th- that that didn't have that kind of timeliness quality? I'm talking about the um, the, the NSA uh, wiretapping yeah, story. Exactly. That Keller spiked in response to pressure from the administration. That broke over a very long period of time and stayed secret even after the election. Is that timeliness slow enough? Well, for I, I think that, that it probably will be a new factor. In, again, I, I said that that all inst- almost any institution you can think of is going to be recalibrating what it can do, what it should do in the light of this this new reality. And if it were a factor, it's always a factor in journalistic decisions of whether the news is going to get out some other way. If, if you know everybody else is going to break a story two hours from now, you behave one way. If you think nobody else knows it, you can behave in a different way. And so if the certainty or likelihood of ongoing WikiLeaks disclosure becomes a reality of journalistic decision-making, yes, I think decisions like that would turn out differently. Gotcha. Now, there was one of the things said last Sunday that's that's relevant here, and that is that there's a sense that we've developed, that the blogosphere has developed, from reading um, the more public statements of people who are in Washington, that they're aware of many things they don't report. Everybody knows that this is really true. Everybody knows about this classified information. Everybody knows that, that Rove is the one who leaked plain information. Everybody knows that, but nobody can talk about it. Matt Cooper knew it. Judy Miller knew it. People who knew Matt knew it. Kind of this whole information set exists that doesn't ever get reported. Do you think is that paranoia that's influencing this, or is there some truth to that? Um, I think to to hog the microphone here again for a second. I think there are two different kinds of everybody knows. One is that what I think Jay Rosen and others would call the, the village mentality, where everybody who is part of a certain environment, like DC journalists, they all know something, but they don't notice it anymore. And so they don't have this this sort of fresh eyes to say, wait a minute, it's outrageous that everybody who's being hired for the new congressional staff is we're coming from a lobbying firm or other things which just become inured to in these kind of tired uh, D.C. style. So that's one kind of everybody knows. A different kind is, believe me, if people knew and could prove that Karl Rove had been behind those leaks, I think they would have behaved differently. And the everybody knows in that case would be, Everybody suspected, or everybody thought, or everybody would bet. But if they were able to say, I know this enough to be able to put it in print, I think they would have done it. Yeah, the, the example that's actually used, I'm remembering now, was um, the domestic spying, that everybody knew about that. And I remember, too, at the near the same time, Carl Bernstein was on John Stewart, and he just kind of offhandedly remarked, well, of course, you know, dozens of classified documents cross my desk every day. And, and perhaps he's exaggerating. But there is a sense that classification, kind of like when Daniel Moynihan wrote that study he did about secrecy. Do you remember that one? Uh, yes, and I, I, can, I can tell you from something I do know from working in the government, everybody I've interviewed in the government confirms, if we set aside something like exactly how far the North Korean nuclear program has gone today or things that are very real-time operational intelligence, things other than that, you know just as much by reading a good newspaper as you do from the classified cables. There's nothing profoundly different you know from this classified stuff. And so anybody who says, oh, if you knew what I knew, X, Y, and Z, you should disbelieve them for that reason. (laughs) A couple of things in reply to that. Thomas Boswell, who is the great baseball writer for the Washington Post, 
Um, I heard him once say something I, very insightful. He, uh, some, he had started out as a, uh, I think he was a Metro reporter, maybe he reported on politics for a while, and somebody asked him why he switched to sports and stuck with sports. And he said that when he goes to a Baltimore Orioles game, because at that time the Nationals didn't exist, and comes back to report his story for the Washington Post or write a column. He says, everything I saw at the ballpark, I can get into my story. (laughs) And he said, I never had that feeling when I was reporting on politics, which I think is is really interesting. Another point along the same lines, uh, Nick Denton, who is the maestro of the Gawker media empire and the owner, uh, founder of Gawker, the founding insight in his blog empire was that journalists are much more interesting to listen to in a bar than they are to read on the page because they tell you much more of what they know. And his idea was, what if I created a publishing environment in which my journalists could be as interesting on the page as they are in the bar? And the different rules and sensibility and the different permissibility of his his sites results from that original insight. Can I just say something about that? I, you know, I think that, number one, that perception of the gap between what people know and what they can say was much bigger 20 years ago than now, I think. That was the old, when, when newspapers were more of a straitjacket than they are. So, But I think that the perception is true but has been reducing. A second point is, if people have ever been written about themselves, <laughs> if they've had stories Which done have, about it, yeah. that they are sometimes grateful for the constraints that are built into mainstream journalism. <laughs> you know, because it, it's different to be written about in a story where it has to say, on the other hand, versus being written about in, in a blog, <laughs> often. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true. <laughs> but there's also a sense in the blogosphere about actual media complicity. The village media does serve not merely a role of reporting um, in a watchdog fashion, but reporting in a cooperative fashion, as as in the Iraq war reporting. And I, and I don't think that feeling has diminished at all. And in fact, one reason I think you may be seeing a strong positive reaction to WikiLeaks among those same people is they feel like there needs to be some pressure put on collaboration between the government and um, and reporters. On this one, uh, I you know in the build up to the Iraq War, I was living in D.C. then, and the mood in D.C. and and, and similar to a mood I think in much of New York was, well, in D.C. there was this kind of John Philip Sousa, William Randolph Hearst, uh, just thirst for war. And I was not in this camp. I was trying to write everything I could in the Atlantic, saying this is, the evidence is not there, this is not well justified, et cetera. But I think it is right to view, number one, the culture of D.C. journalism as being fundamentally a sort of presidential culture, that the White House Correspondents' Dinner is always a horrifying spectacle because you can tell everybody is sort of glad to be there as part of, of presidential culture, no matter who, who is in office. I think it also mattered that the 9-11 attacks were in New York. And so many of the normal sort of liberal uh, institutions in New York had been understandably galvanized and radicalized and sort of hawkized in, in the build-up to, to the war and then had a different different tone. So um, I think that there was 
the Iraq War was an extreme case of this phenomenon, and and it's it's um, of hugely consequence. It's not that bad every single day, but that was a really bad case. We in the Bogus are also saying this is happening in Social Security right now as well. That Social Security is being treated as a problem that the village and the village reporters believe elements of um, some of the government believe in, but that doesn't have any basis in any reality that we're aware of. You know, my personal view is in sympathy with what you've just said. I think that the the problems of Social Security, quote-unquote, right now are 1% the problems of joblessness, slack demand, the need for extra stimulus, et cetera. That's just my own view and based on my own understanding of, of economics. I think that what is being referred to as village thinking is the tyranny of conventional wisdom in almost everything. If you go to congressional hearings, if you go to think tanks, you'll get these presentations on the nightmare of the deficit. And like any other human institution, most people in the institution are average. <laughs> and those, you know, there is a kind of uh, a kind of average conventional wisdom that prevails in journalism as it does elsewhere. I think it is not conspiratorial as much as, as it is anthropological. That doesn't make it better. It makes it somewhat different. Right. It falls into the, the, the model that Jay was talking about earlier, the spheres of deviance right. and the spheres. And, in fact, Jay, my, the T-shirt, my official, virtually speaking, T-shirt is, says living in the sphere of deviance. That's yeah. very much what we do here. Um, I want to ask Jim something. Uh, you have been able to look at our press with fresh eyes after spending all that time in, in China. Could you just give us a few highlights for what stands out for you coming back to it now and, and looking at it now? Here are a couple of scattershot things. One is the the sad decline of the Washington Post. Oh, you know, boy, just, you're, it, boy, you're so right. It just, just is shocking to have. It, it's like seeing a friend after being away for three years and you suddenly draw in your breath to saying, you know, a friend who's sick and yeah. saying, oh, you know, how, how sort of sallow it looks. And sort of the poor Washington Post, you know, that, that's a whole topic of itself. Plus, the editorial and op ed pages of the Washington Post have become objectively similar to the Wall Street Journal without that, that being recognized, I think. A second thing which strikes me is I've been trying to find a way. When people ask me, how is it that Chinese people are just kind of, they're fine with whatever is the official government line, and they're happy to believe it about Tibet or whatever, I say, well, think of the Fox News infosphere. People there hear this, this kind of 24-7 view of reality, and they're happy with it, as opposed to being frustrated by it and looking for, there's a kind of narrative wholeness to it, as you've written about extensively, uh, Jay. And I, I guess I, it is now striking to see the other final point is the diversity of the news media in both good and bad ways. Good in that so many young people from so many diverse points of view and so many uh, new ways of getting information out, that's much better than was the case 15 years ago. The other side of that is the old center cannot hold kind of argument. It's interesting that WikiLeaks had to go to the New York Times and, and the Guardian to get this out, and there are fewer and fewer places like that that can establish this is true, this is not true, this is important, mm -hmm. this is not important. So th those are the things I have uh, noticed in coming back and seeing this uh, for the first time in a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one last thing, one last question that was posed a while ago. It's kind of off topic. I'd like to close with that because I don't think it's possible to close with Wiki. I think we're still looking at such a multifarious, multitudinous, multi-whatever-you-want phenomenon that we really can't get a hold of it right now. And one of the things that came up, Mr. Fallow, is, is that her reference is made back to your your story under orders under fire when you said why does America hate the media, mm -hmm. which you nineteen, which was a very influential piece. The question that was asked 
Well, Jim, do you want to recount or do you want me to? Yes, yeah, so this was a, an, an episode I actually was describing involving Mike Wallace and Peter Jennings, etc. This was something from one of the Fred Friendly TV PBS series, probably in the early 90s, I think. And I was writing this in the, in the mid-90s in, in, in my book. And so just to boil down the, the story, it was uh, I think that Charles Ogletree, the professor from Harvard Law School, was having these thought experiments for a panel of people in, in journalism. And he was having Peter Jennings ask about if you were on patrol in some invented uh, war. It was meant to be like Vietnam or North Korea or something. And you were with the enemy troops and you saw they were about to ambush an American unit. What would you do about it? And you know, would you do anything? And Peter Jennings was sort of hemming and hawing and viewing this as a, a difficult issue. And Mike Wallace sort of jumped in and said, well, it's not hard at all. You just cover the story. There's, you know, it's just uh, black and white, et cetera. And the point I was making from that is is that there are moral complexities to the work of the press. And what was, I thought, seen as offensive by what uh, what Mike Wallace was saying was that everybody else in the panel, which included soldiers and included spies and things like that, viewed it as a complicated issue, and he didn't. And that, that, that was the main point. These are complicated issues, and there is weight attached to the decisions made one way or another. And so the question that, the, um, that Stewart asked is, is this possibly the beginning of editors and reporters being aware the rest of the country found their noble journalistic principles largely unpatriotic and amoral? I guess I'm not – I would have expected the question to be, wouldn't this be the indication for the, from the rest of the country that uh, people thought that the journalists had been asleep at the switch or hadn't been, been looking hard enough for the story? Is that the implication, or, or is, am I what, – uh, he's, he's trying to say there seems to have been a point where there's been a loss of faith in journalism. And was, is it, was it this kind of thing? Was it this kind of hyper-professionalism, detachment? that um, is part of, I think, Jay Rosen's voice from nowhere. Right, and that, that of course, is a point where, where I do agree with, with Jay, and there are, there are particular radio and TV pundits we could both name <laughs> who, who exemplify this, uh, but I won't go down that, that road. This, to me, would seem to illustrate a different problem of the press that, that is annoying people, which is a sense of not being alert enough you know, on the public's behalf and perhaps being too cozy uh, and too willing to, you know, again, the, the Iraq War, Judy Miller type type problem. So I don't see this as being directly connected to that that somewhat different but also important problem of feeling as if journalists were too detached from the world in which they operated, did not feel themselves responsible for the consequences of, of their work. And I think these are both important issues. Yeah. Jerry, do you want to respond to that? And then I've got a closing question from the audience. Well, I think that very often journalists, especially political journalists, drawn into the inside of the story the way they are, tend to equate their superior access to how things work with superior adulthood or maturity in their own outlook on the world. And that is a fatal error. <laughs> I well, noticed, that sounds like the Church of the Savvy to me. Yeah, right? and I, no, I noticed, for example, in, and, I, and I actually collected these uh, links at m one of my sites, my public notebook site. I noticed in the commentary on the TSA, to, to bring us back to where we started, that a lot of columnists and journalists, instead of making an argument about security theater or making a an argument for why we need 
this and, and acknowledging that there are differences of view would present their view that this was an overblown concern in the language of adults lecturing children. It was The message was, grow up. Not, I have a better argument than you, but if you're really upset about this TSA stuff, you should just grow up. I think there's there's a tendency in the press culture to to take differences in philosophy, legitimate political differences, and try and jam them into either insiders, outsiders, sophisticated, unsophisticated, or childish, immature versus adult and and sort of seasoned. And every time journalists do that, I think they actually increase mistrust a little bit. I would agree with that, and and two points. One is there's a famous column in the Washington Post. I, I would imagine you're thinking of uh, Jay Rosen, which essentially put it just that way. You know, stop complaining about the TSA, uh, gr- grow up. The other yeah, Ruth Marcus literally said, Marcus, "Grow up." Yes. Yeah, yeah. And and the other is that in a way that was the tone of President Obama's press conference yesterday. In, in the end, you know, people want me to draw the line here, but but grow up. You know, I, I and so that's a whole different um, topic to open up. But that that, that also sure is, is sort of the same tone. Speech writer Jimmy Carter. Sure is. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't mind. I don't mind my president telling me that. I, yep. I, I really don't want my pundit telling me that. If you know that, what I that's, mean. That's yes. Very good point. I'm going to get this closing question before we get off on that tangent and are here until nine until midnight. Meredith Nigino wants to know. She directs it to Jay Rosen. I'd like you both to answer it, and then we'll wrap up. He, she'd like to know if you would define Jay, or you would define James. WikiLeaks as journalism. Huh. Well. Um, I actually don't care about that, just as I, I don't care very much about whether you call this person a journalist and, this, and that person not a journalist. I think those arguments actually are staged by professional journalists to read some people out of the picture and, and include others in it. I think it's much more important to ask whether WikiLeaks is informing the public and doing so in a reliable way that we can trust. It's more important to ask whether they are a legitimate actor. It's more important to know where they're coming from than it is to be able to sort them into a a journalistic bin or or none. So I who is a journalist? Is this journalism I find those questions animate curmudgeons and conservatives in newsrooms uh, much more than they than they bother me. Now, having said that, there are, in a descriptive way, there are aspects of what WikiLeaks does that I think are legitimately called editorial functions. If they are choosing what to release based on how important it is, that's an editorial function. If they are verifying the documents they get so that they know that these are actual bank records from the Bank of America and not fakes, that is an editorial function. If they are providing the necessary background for us to understand this document so that it's not just floating out there in abstract space, that is an editorial function. So the more those things that we can identify, the stronger the claim they have on being journalists. But 
in general, I think the reason that people like to argue about those sorts of things is that so that they can read some people out and include their friends in. Anything to add, James? I would have basically agree that I think that the definition is not important except in the broadest sense. If journalism is the act of informing people about things they don't know, then this is part of the process of journalism. And I would add one other thing, Jay, which is one important thing that distinguishes journalism from politics is people in politics are power-seeking. People in journalism have to be truth-seeking. And if you are primarily truth-seeking, then you can be welcomed into the club of journalists, no matter what your background is. That's there's some power-seeking that goes on in journalism, too. Right. <laughs> <So> that's well, <laughs> another whole topic. Indeed. Jay Rosen, thank you so much for joining us. James thank you. Sarrow, thank you, sir. <laughs> Good night. Thank you so Bye. much. Good night. Thanks.